and welcome to Ending Physician Overwhelm. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Mello. I'm a family and obesity medicine physician, as well as a certified life coach for physicians. In this podcast, we talk about how the learned habits of people-pleasing, perfectionism, and a lack of boundaries show up in our lives and how they contribute to burnout, exhaustion, and overwhelm. The healthcare system is broken, my friends, but let's not wait for it to be fixed in order to feel better. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another special guest episode. Today, I am joined by Dr. Delia Teramanti, who is an integrative palliative medicine physician and experienced medical educator. And today, we're going to be talking about compassion fatigue. So, Dr. Delia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. So compassion fatigue is something um, that I am hearing about more and more. And before we really dive in and get into the nitty gritty, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of introduce yourself to the listeners and share a little bit of your story um, and your experience with compassion fatigue. Sure. Um, I started out as a family doctor and I practiced family medicine for a while. And then my career moved towards integrative medicine first, which was the combination of conventional medicine plus adding complementary medicine tools, and then moved to palliative care, which is the care of people with serious illness focused on relieving their symptoms. So their emotional suffering and physical suffering. And now what I'm doing is putting those last two pieces together and I'm really interested in the idea of integrative palliative care, which is using all the tools that we have to reduce people's suffering. And really, that's both the, the patients and family, but also the physicians. Because when you engage with people who are suffering from serious illness, it's hard on the patient, it's hard on the family, and it's even hard on the physician. Yeah, so, so glad that you're doing that work. I think it's such an important area and I love folding in the integrative piece, which I don't know, takes some of the, I don't know, the clinical sterility, out, Yes, <laughs> you know, of sort of yeah. the care of people. Um, so that's, that's really great. Um, and let's, let's go ahead and dive in. So, you know, compassion fatigue is a term that I've been hearing a lot about recently and I'm, I'm hearing a lot of physician clients talk about it. I'm starting to encounter it more in sort of physician conversations. But even though I've been doing physician wellness work for mm, close to eight years now, um, I didn't really encounter this term in my family medicine primary care world really until I sort of uh, jumped into the world of physician coaching. And so I'm curious to hear sort of how you would define it, describe it for us. Um, sort of when it entered your vocabulary in terms of the work that you do. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. It's a big question. <laughs> sure. So the, the term compassion fatigue for me, to break it down to its most simple form, for me, that is the impact on us of helping others. Mm -hmm. The impact on us of helping others. And so it's a popular term in palliative care because in oncology, you know, a lot of the patients have really serious things. People die. Sometimes young people die. There's a lot of, of angst for the patient family, but also the physicians. 
and other mm-hmm. clinicians. But I honestly think it's equally important in primary care and other places where you still have to give a whole lot of yourself. And even though maybe not everybody is dying, people are in distress, they're agitated, they're upset, they wish they could get better, they don't want to lose weight, there's too many of them, they want to talk to you about their problems, but you only have 11 minutes, so you've got to move them on, and then they're, you know, they're not happy about that. So it's a a multifactorial nuanced concept of the hard parts of us helping others and how that impacts us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, um, I love what you said, you know, yes, it certainly, you know, sounds like it's been talked about more in certain settings where, you know, we've got terminal illness, we've got, you know, people, people who we expect to die right in the sort of palliative care realm and oncology realm, but, you know, think about how it comes up for, uh, you know, patients of ours who have chronic pain, who have, you know, severe anxiety, or they have PTSD that causes them to be more difficult to engage with in the clinic setting. I mean, so many, so many areas where that pops up in primary care and probably, probably every specialty to some extent, right? And even, even things like, I really think you need to take these medicines to get your blood pressure under control so you don't have a stroke or an MI, but you can't afford them. Mm-hmm. Even just that angst of, I want to help you and care for you and, and make you better, but circumstances make it so that you can't get the care that I think you should get, that, that also gives compassion fatigue, right? Because that's some sort of moral distress that I'm trying to help you, but you can't be helped in the way I want. That's also hard. So I think there's a lot of ways it comes up. The most simplistic being the very sick person who maybe is dying, but there's a ton of other ways too that we can be negative. It's not necessarily negative even, but just sort of like heavily impacted by helping others. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other examples? I think for me, you know, times that I might need to be more alert to it would be kind of when I feel a heaviness before I go into the room, right? Like I'm I'm dreading seeing that person and it might be that I know them and I had my experience with them, or it might be, um, the chief complaint that I can see, right. I'm like, Oh God, I don't want to do that. What are some other examples of how people might notice this coming up for them during their workday? Well, I, I think that example you gave was great. And I learned in medical school, if you feel depressed coming out of the room, the patient is probably depressed. So we can have a lot of interaction between us and the patient that sometimes is uplifting, but sometimes can be very heavy. And so one of the, in my mind, kind of preventative approaches in general, whether it's the, the patient that's depressed, the patient that's mad at you, the patient that's kind of agitated, the patient's a chronic pain that you can't fix, or they have a chronic whatever that you can't fix, all of that is this this image of walking beside someone on a journey. Mm -hmm. That has been tremendously helpful for me because of course we wanna fix all the people. We wanna fix all the things and all the people and make it all better. That's why we went to medical school. But Mm -hmm. of course the truth is a lot of people can't be fixed. They simply can't be fixed. And they may have some feelings about that. And we may have some feelings about that. But when, when our goal is to fix and it's unfixable, that's heavy. When our goal is to walk beside somebody on the journey that they were given, we didn't give them rheumatoid arthritis, right? <laughs> somebody gave them that, the universe, God, whatever you're yeah. you, but I didn't give you that. <laughs> so if our vision is, literally I picture it in my head that we were walking beside them, 
and say they're climbing up a steep hill. I didn't make the hill steep, but it's steep. And the choices are they can walk up it alone or I can walk up next to them and help them as I can. Like I can carry their pack a little bit or I can give them some of my water maybe, but I can't make the mountain go away. I can't make it be shorter. And that's okay. It's okay. So like it's literally valid to walk beside someone on their difficult journey. That counts as helping. Yeah. Well, and that's so interesting that that actually ties into this other idea of compassionate detachment, right? Where you are able to be with them. You are able to, you know, experience the journey of going with them, but yes, you're separating yourself from that need to fix, right? Which is such a challenge in so many, so many of us who, you know, I think pick up the idea during training that if we can't fix somebody, it's the, because we're lacking skills, knowledge, or expertise, right? Like we, we're not okay if we can't fix, Um, but, but you're right. Like there's so many people that we cannot actually fix them. We cannot remove their disease. We cannot remove their trauma, like any of those things, but we can be there with them. And it counts. It's not like, oh, I could just be there with them. It's literally helping. It is the helping that is appropriate for this person. Once you've done all the things that you can do to lift their load, to, you know, try to fix their condition or make it under better control or manage their pain or whatever. But if you can't make it perfect, which often we cannot, but you've done all that you can do, then it is a legitimate, helpful, useful, real intervention to walk beside them on this journey because otherwise they walk it alone. And I think once you really own that as, as one of your tools, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you can call that healing presence. There's a lot of things you could call it. But once you really own it as a legitimate tool, it takes away a lot of that heavy feeling. And, and that is part of what makes compassion fatigue happen is that, oh, I can't fix it. And it's heavy and they're mad or upset or sad. And I'm mad or upset or sad. That's what makes it feel heavy. People mm-hmm. don't usually feel compassion fatigue when they they see a patient and then the patient gets totally better and they say, Oh my God, thank you so much. Like that, that doesn't give you. <laughs> right. Right. It's when yeah. things aren't going great. That's yeah. usually when it comes. And so the, a big part of, of prevention is where we put ourselves in that whole story. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, um, you know, when you were dipping your toes into the palliative care world was, were, there are actual skills that you were taught, you know, that really sort of helped with that, because I do think that that's not something that we talk about. We talk about, you know, needing to be professional, you know, in front of patients, we talk about, I remember so many people in medical school, professors would get up in front of the room, and they'd be like, you should go for a run every day, take care of yourself. And it's like, <laughs> okay, that I, exercise is important. I'm not saying that's not true, but that's not the only thing. That's not the only way. Um, But I'm curious if palliative medicine is doing a better job than, than sort of what the rest of us get. Yeah. Yes. And no, I think absolutely they do a better job. And we do, when you learn palliative medicine, they talk about it for sure more. Um, And it's, it's definitely a part of the conversation. I, I think the the steps that I think of for myself didn't totally come from a book, but came partly from what they taught me and partly from my experience. And so I would say that really it's three things that I think are helpful for managing compassion fatigue. And that's both 
preventing it, but then also managing it. Cause it's not, it's, it's going to be part of the conversation. We don't you don't cure are, it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You don't cure it. Right. There's no cure for that. <laughs> it's part of the conversation for all of us and some more than others, depending on your circumstance, but it is something we all should be aware of and, and actively preventing. So for me, there's three things. I'll say them all and then I'll go back and talk. Yep, about go ahead. Them. So the first one is rituals. Rituals are really important. And we don't learn that in medical school or medical training at all. And I think it's tremendously important. And we'll talk in a second, if you don't mind. Algorithms, yes. Rituals, no. (laughs) Right. So rituals, boundaries, and there's various kinds around that. And then filling up our own cup. Those Mm -hmm. are the three things that I think are really important for preventing, but then also managing compassion fatigue. So what do I mean by rituals? We're, we're better about that in palliative medicine than in other specialties, I think. So part of compassion fatigue is grief, mm-hmm. right? It's grief, grief that people die, grief that you can't save them, grief that you can't take all their pain away, grief that they're still anxious, even though you did all the things you know to do. So there's a lot of grief in the work that we do, which we generally acknowledge 0% of the time, right? No one talks about grief in in medicine for doctors, but it's really important. And, you know, so what do you do about grief? When you lose someone, just as an example that you love, there's no magic to make it all better by tomorrow. Partly you have to feel it, but partly we use rituals to help us cope. That's what societies do because they help, you know? We have Mm -hmm. funerals, we have the, the book that you put out, at the funeral where everybody writes who that they came and maybe something nice about the person. You make a, a photo composition to show people at the funeral. You look at photo albums as a family, you cry. Like we, we have rituals around grief and I would encourage us to use those kinds of things for mm-hmm. ourselves around our patients. And so I'll just give you a couple examples of what my yeah. team did. Um, we Number one, we put up a a really beautiful tree graphic on the wall with leaves that you could stick up on the wall. And so when one of our patients died, we would put their initials and then something, something we remembered about them, something that someone said about them, something, you know, and we put it up so that Mm -hmm. when we walked by, it was in a private place in the office, but when we walked by, we were basically honoring the people whose lives we had been connected to while they were still on this planet. Mm-hmm. And that was very powerful because we saw it all the time. Because one of the things that's painful is when you're like, oh, well, they died. Let's move on. Right. Get the paperwork done. Yeah. That <laughs> hurts our soul, right? That's terrible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't just say, oh, well, grandma died. Let's go out to lunch. You're like, oh, we have, we sit shiva. We have things. We wear colors, right? We have rituals to say they mattered and it's sad that they're gone and they were meaningful on this earth. So it's like that. So that tree for us was one example. There, you don't have to do a tree, but there, that concept of honoring that these people lived and remembering mm-hmm. them is important. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we did on our team, which I really loved, is once a month, we would have our mind-body specialist bring a singing bowl, and she would ask everybody, okay, who give me names from all the team members, who died, but even who maybe was dying or mm-hmm. who was really struggling, like really struggling. And sometimes we would even add people from the world if there had been a shooting or if there was someone who, you know, in, in the news was suffering. We would just sort of bring like, we're trying to 
send some healing energy to the people who have died or are suffering. And she would write down their names and then she would play the singing bowl, which makes this really resonant, beautiful sound. And while she was playing it, she would speak these names. Mm. Everybody in the room would sit with our eyes closed and we would hear the singing bowl and we would hear their names and we would just be in kind of honoring presence about these people. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm just thinking about how this might apply to, <clears throat> to others where, where there isn't a, a death, you know, where there isn't um, something, but, but still sort of incorporating some kind of practice into our days of, um, you know, I certainly have met people who, you know, might write, um, yeah, initials or something, something to remember sort of who it is in a HIPAA compliant way, but, you know, then sort of writing them into, uh, you know, a book or something that they can, you know, um, choose to send, yeah, kind of healing energy towards, or, you know, something like that to kind of honor, this is a person with chronic pain. This is a person with a new cancer diagnosis. This is a person who, you know, their son just went to jail. This is someone that I want to, you know, kind of celebrate in a way, um, and maybe sort of intentionally creating a ritual around that, you know, some little brief practice in between patients or the week or something. Um, I love that idea. Yeah. And exactly what you said, the, the, the structure doesn't matter. So you could do it at the end of the week for yourself, just on your own. You could take three deep breaths and, you know, bring to mind the names of the, of your patients who have struggled that week and just, Mm -hmm you know, send them healing energy, which you could probably do in two minutes. You could as an office once a month, if you want, do sort of what we did. That little ritual took 10 minutes max a month. Yeah, yeah. You could could not say, and we didn't just do people who died, but you could say people who are struggling, all the examples that you gave, like call to mind there. You you don't have to say it out loud. You could say everybody call to mind your people. And then we're just going to play the singing ball five minutes, send them healing energy, whatever. It doesn't matter what you do, but the idea of doing something ritualistic to honor them, mm-hmm. honor the experience, ironically makes us feel better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, that's not, you know, obviously yeah. us, but part of the compassion fatigue is that you see a lot of heavy stuff. And then we're just like, okay, moving on next thing. And, and you have to do something with the heaviness or it builds up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, and we'll probably touch on this more in a little bit, but, you know, part of the, part of the problem with compassion fatigue is that we are out of compassion and usually we have not used any on ourselves, right? We are, we, we feel that real emptiness to it and, um, you know, being able to incorporate rituals helps us to, you know, intentionally really feel compassionate in a, in a in an intentional way, right. Where we're sort of calling it into us. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, really acknowledging people who are difficult for us to deal with as physicians, because that happens. And, you know, it's a way for us to maybe decrease a little bit of the yuck that we feel towards them, but also incorporate more compassion into our day to day. Absolutely. And, and after that little ritual, the, the singing bowl ritual, we all always felt filled up. So yeah. we weren't talking about us. We were talking about other people, but we got, but it up. has a, 
Yeah, absolutely. Everybody in the room, you could tell the whole vibe in the room would change every time we did that. And everyone would leave like, like sort of after a yoga class. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's Shavasana, they're like, oh, like we're just, we're all ready for the next day. Yeah. So, so that's so great. Yeah. All that to say rituals. Rituals. Got it. (laughs) Love it. Encourage people, think about what kind of little rituals you could do. And they don't have to be big ones. What little rituals could you do to to honor the the people or the experience or even just to honor the the heaviness if you went through a heavy thing in the day, just not to stuff it in the basement, you know? Just and not to not to keep spinning on it either, right? There's a little bit of a closure aspect to it as well. Yes, absolutely. I think that's really true. I hadn't thought of that before, but I think it it allowed it allowed us somewhat psychologically or from our soul purpose to like move that to the next place. So we weren't continually carrying more stuff. Yeah. Because you can't do that forever. We can't, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> All right. Well, take us into boundaries, um, yeah. which is one of my favorite topics. So, so yeah, boundaries can take. Yeah, I think that can mean a lot of things in terms of preventing compassion fatigue. Um, one, the probably the most important thing first is just to check in with yourself. Like what what is it that feels heavy and what what could you, what boundary could you set that would make it feel a little less heavy? Because it's different for everybody, right? You don't necessarily have to go talk to your friend or talk to a therapist or cut your patients off exactly on time. Everybody's different and everyone's situation is different. But it starts with checking in with what do you need? So if you are the kind of person as, as I was, I think before I learned some skills where you're just like, however long the patient needs to talk, uh, tell me more, I'll be there forever. And then you're behind. And then the last person, the next person's mad. And then the one after them is mad. And then all your charts. You give are everybody more and more and more time and more, and more time. All your charts are building up. You didn't get any of them done. Now you have to do them all at night. Now you can't rest or be with your family. Like that whole cycle, if, if that's you, then you will have more compassion fatigue and part uh, and burnout maybe, but then part of boundaries for you is saying, I need to, I need to keep the visit within the visit time mm-hmm. because I know that if I only give out so much that it ends up hurting me because I don't have my home time because I have all these charts that that's not good for me. So in that person boundaries might be like, I got to learn some skills to make these visits tighter. Uh, or I've got to learn some skills for doing some charting during the visit so it doesn't build up at night. That mm-hmm. might be boundaries for that person. Yeah. For another person, it might be, um, I need to figure out when I'm getting depleted and ask for help. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're the kind of person who says, no, I'm fine. I got it. I can take more patients. No Do problem. Do all the things. No, fine. Give me more. Give me more. Maybe for that person, the boundaries are learning to say, I wish I could help you but I actually am really full and I can't do that right now. Can't squeeze in your extra patients. I can't take that extra shift, whatever it is that you're asking me to do. So for that person, it might be a different kind of boundary. Yeah. And I think, I think what you just said, you know, adding some kind of, you know, compassionate phrase up front before you say no is also helpful. You know, I wish we had more time today to talk about all these issues. I'm afraid we're going to have to limit it to these two. I wish that I could help you right now, but I'm not able to do that. Um, you know, cause we, we often, when we're doing this work, we just hear, I have to say no. <laughs> right. And we don't have the skill of like putting, 
putting that little phrase in front, which can make such a big difference, right? And we still get to feel that we are being compassionate, even though we are practicing that boundary. Exactly. And then for some people, if, if you're really struggling, the boundary might be, I need to take some time off. I need to ask for a reduced mm-hmm. schedule. I mm-hmm. need to leave this job that is depleting mm-hmm. me so much and get a job with a better schedule. So checking in with yourself and setting some kind of boundary so that you are not constantly being depleted. Right. That I think is very important. Yeah, I agree with you 1200% on that one. <laughs> and then number three, but it's number three on purpose is mm-hmm. filling up your own cup. And the concept there is, as you, I know you are very well versed in this idea, but the concept being that if you're depleted, hard things are harder. Yeah. And so doing things to fill up your cup does not mean administrators don't have to fix things or that it's all our problem or it's not victim shaming, but it is also true that if you have hard things to do and you are depleted, they will feel harder. So part of the whole story is learning how to fill up our cup, which has two components. Don't empty it so much and fill it in from the top. Those two things are important. And so for some of us, it's more about we're emptying a lot, like we're perseverating, our, we have all these cognitive distortions, we're you know focusing on the negative, we could be emptying. For some people, we don't do that so much, but we're not sleeping, not moving, not doing anything fun, not connecting with our people. So maybe we're not emptying it so much, but we're also not filling it so much. Yeah. And so that I think is an important concept for a person and for patients, I always, and physicians too, draw a cup and have people write on the bottom, what are you, what in your life empties your cup and write up mm-hmm. on the top, what fills your cup and then circle a couple things on the top and the bottom that you could work on. What could you do less of on the bottom and more of on the top that would make your overall cup more full so that it's not so hard to do hard things. Yeah. I love the idea of incorporating that into, you know, patient care as well. I think of, you know, so many applications in terms of, you know, busy working moms who are struggling with anxiety or depression, people who are struggling with weight loss, people who are caregivers, you know, all, all sorts of different circumstances, right. Where we need both that awareness of what, what, you know, uh, drains our batteries and, and how do we actually fill them? Because when we don't think about how do my batteries actually get filled up? Then we don't know that we need the top off, right? We just, we're kind of waiting for other people to do it for us. But even if the administrators came and, you know, handed us a free two week vacation and said, here, go enjoy, you know, as they so often do, yeah, right. <laughs> um, they can't make us feel rested. They can't make us feel valued or, you know, sort of refill our compassion cup you know, that, that is internal work, even though we, we often think, well, they're the reason why, uh, you know, why I feel this way. It's like, even if that's true, there's still this component of you have to know what's fun for you. You have to know what's recharging for you. I love that idea of, um, of the people drawing their cup and what goes on the top, but what goes on the bottom. Wonderful. It's very clear for for people because they come up with it all. And then they look Mm -hmm. at it and go, oh yeah. I used to do all those things on the top mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I haven't been doing any of them lately. And then they answered their own question. Like, Hmm, I wonder if you started doing a couple of those, if it might start to feel better. Yeah, <laughs> It's different for everyone. I think that's so important. Not everybody needs to do yoga or go running True. or go to run. 
Yeah, some people don't want to run and they don't want to do yoga. And there's a lot of other things that may fill up their cup. Some people want to knit, other people hate knitting. So it's not like here's wellness behaviors, you should do them. Right. From my perspective, it's what fills up your cup? Who are you as a person? You tell me what fills up your cup. How about you go do some of those things? Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I would draw another parallel to that is when we don't know really what fills our cup, we will grab whatever is available, you know, whether that's, um, you know, social media, uh, you know, alcohol, you know, binge eating, you know, like any number of other behaviors, right. That seem like they fill us up, but they don't really give us that lasting satisfaction. They don't really recharge our batteries. Yeah. 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 And I have found that people are so smart at answering this question. You know, I've asked people, probably hundreds of people to do that exercise. No mm-hmm. one has ever said social media fills my cup or eating junk food. <laughs> they know. No they Instagram? No. <laughs> no one has ever said that. <laughs> Sometimes that ends up on the bottom. Yeah. Eating my cup. But people know. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that's, <laughs> that's an important gem there. Um, and let's let's pivot just a little bit. So there there is a lot of burn, uh, sorry, overlap between burnout and compassion fatigue. And if you go down the Google rabbit hole, you'll find that a lot of the definitions want to pull in one or the other. And I'm wondering sort of how you would distinguish the two um, and whether you think it's important for us to, you know, to even sort of separate those terms. I do think it's important to separate them. Um, In my view of this continuum, compassion fatigue comes first, and it's one of the things, if it's continues to be heavy and unresolved can contribute to burnout, but it's certainly not the only one. And you Mm -hmm. can end up in burnout without compassion fatigue if it's all about like the administrative way your work is being organized, et cetera. And and plenty of people have burnout who are not physicians. And so compassion Mm -hmm. may not be a huge part of their work. The thing that I think is important to differentiate is that burnout is pretty much not good. (laughs) It's not good. It's not good. You don't want to have burnout. It's not helpful. If you have it, you want to unhave it. Should not be a badge of honor. Not good. (laughs) Compassion fatigue is a little bit part of our work and Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of um, a a message just to pay attention, you know? Mm -hmm. In a way, like if you are someone who, when you're stressed out, tends to get achy and fatigued, you wouldn't want to take that away because it's a little bit of a message to you Mm -hmm. that you need Mm -hmm. to work on something. Like and an indicator light going off, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to think about it. So, so while burnout is not good, compassion fatigue, when you're aware of it, if you start to notice, gosh, I really am, I'm just feeling exhausted. I'm feeling I don't want to go in that room. When I get home from work, it just feels heavy. That may be compassion fatigue. That's a message to you. You know, mm-hmm. do I, what should I do about this? Do I can I do some rituals that would help? Like, am I feeling hurt in my soul that these people are suffering and I'm not thinking about it? Is, is it, do I need to set some boundaries? Do I need to fix what's happening in the way I run my clinic? Or do I need to talk to administration and get a break or something? Um, or am I just depleted? Cause gosh, I'm, I'm not managing my anxiety and depression and I don't exercise anymore. I'm not sleeping enough and I'm not doing anything fun with my friends. So, you know, do I need to fix that? So I, I see it more like, a a continuum of compassion that's gone a little bit too far and needs a little work. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of like the idea that we notice it and then we do the work and then we feel better. 
Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and we can incorporate um, Dr. Kristen Neff's, you know, ideas here about self-compassion, which includes self-kindness, you know, kind of the way that we talk to ourselves, common humanity, recognizing that these situations are difficult for more than just us, right? For all the other humans who do the same work we do or care for others or are working parents or whatever that situation is. Um, and then the mindfulness piece, which is not, not over or under identifying with our, with our emotions, right? So recognizing I am feeling that, you know, I'm feeling very tired. I notice I'm feeling very exhausted right now. Um, you know, being aware of it, but not taking it as a, that means I can't do anything. That means I have no choice in the matter. Right? Absolutely. And, and not like I'm broken either. Right. Right. Yeah. Or I'm doomed. No, not at all. It's, it's just like you said, it's an indicator light of, Ooh, I'm a little out of balance. And there are some things that I could, could do that I could work on that will make me feel better and, and also will make me a more effective healer. Because when we get really fatigued, compassion fatigued or otherwise, we're not as empathetic. We're not as available to our, our people who we're trying to help. So yeah. it's just like said, everything weird. feels harder. Yeah. yeah. It's an opportunity to check in with ourselves and, and tweak things so that it goes better. Yeah. We've already sort of answered this last one, but I'm wondering, um, you know, if, if someone listening is, you know, following along with us and, and it's like, oh, that's exactly like, that's exactly what I'm feeling. And they, they didn't maybe have the idea of it didn't have the language around it. Like if there is anything else that you would recommend for them to sort of get started in this process of taking care of themselves sort of in the face of compassion fatigue, um, we've got the the great nuggets of the rituals and the boundaries and um, um, the filling our filling our own cup. Um, is there anything else that you would add to that? I don't know that I would add, but I would say start small and do those things. Mm -hmm. Right? Sometimes we can we can think, oh yeah, someday I should make a whole compassion fatigue plan, and then we do nothing. So I would say when I have time, I will sit. Right, I will. When I have time, I'll figure out exactly what I'm going to do. Um, so I, I would say do a tiny thing in each of those three domains. So let's pick the tiniest ritual. How about after you have a difficult patient? I use this one a lot. Um, shake your hands. Shake, like, shake, shake it out. Like you're, it you're like flicking the water away. Flicking the water off your hands, right? Like, like shake, 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 hard, hard, hard. Shake at the wrist to try to get the the heavy yuck stuff off. So there's a ritual that you can do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you see uh, a patient that afterwards you feel like oh heavy, do that when you get out of the room. And if you're embarrassed to do it in public, go into the bathroom and just do it for like thirty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that that could be a very simple. Um, it's and it's not. Um, I don't know. There's not like a, like a spirit, there's not like a spiritual thing that somebody might feel like, Oh, I have to go down this big rabbit hole. It's just literally yeah. sort of shaking our bodies and sort of shake it off. Like love there's that. Okay. that came your way, shake it off. I'm going to use that one today. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one for, for boundaries. That's your ritual for boundaries. How about one time in a clinic day, just one time in a clinic day with one patient say, so today we have X minutes. Mm. What are the most important things that you want to talk about today? Just one patient yeah. per day. Do yeah. that. Yeah. X minutes, 
what are the most important thing you'd like to talk about today? Just start it that way. So they haven't even talked yet. Just try it out. So that's something for boundaries. And then from the fill your cup perspective, pick one thing that you know fills your cup and try to do a tiny bit more. So if you know like exercise makes me feel better, maybe walk around your house during the commercials. Like I'm not saying go buy a gym membership, tiny little tiny things, right? If, if you feel like connecting with people makes me feel better, send one text to someone you haven't talked to in a while. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, Delia, I feel like we could keep talking for uh, many years, probably <laughs> about <laughs> these things, but we will, uh, we will draw to a close there. Um, if people um, are interested in your work and they want to find out more about you, I'd love for you to share, um, you know, a little bit more about the work that you're doing, the, some of the offerings you're having and ways that people can connect with you and follow you. Terrific. Thank you so much. So one of the things that's really important to me is to teach physicians to do integrative symptom management, but with this lens, like what we've just mm-hmm. been talking about, mm-hmm. because we have to fill up in order to be able to give this compassionate integrative symptom management care. And so I have a, a year long program actually, where I train physicians to do this. And so there's some recorded didactics for them to watch, but then also weekly time with other physicians to work through cases, to talk about like, oh, the patient came in and they were depressed. What do we do? Their, their pain won't go away. What do we do? So that we can all learn these skills, both for us and for our patients. Mm-hmm. So that's what, I, that's what is most important to me right now at this time in my career is to share this idea with other physicians. So you can find info about all that at my website, which is integrativepalliative.com, integrativepalliative.com. And then also I, I have links I to have that in the show notes. Thank you. And I have a podcast too, the Integrative Palliative Podcast, where I talk about things like this. So if anybody thinks they might be interested in more of this kind of stuff, I would invite you to check it out. Great. Well, I love, I love that idea too, because you know, as this world of sort of secondary board certifications explodes with people getting, you know, integrative and functional medicine and obesity medicine and, you know, all these extra certifications, um, you are very intentionally incorporating that self-care piece and that, you know, coming from a place of wholeness in being able to offer these skills in these ways to patients instead of, you know, sort of tapping into that feeling of can't do enough what I have right now is not enough to offer people. So I love that you shared that part of it um, because that really, that really is important. You know, I, I see so many people, you know, kind of seeking these extra skills, you know, with the idea of like, well, then I'll finally be able to be enough for people. And it's like, no, 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 nope. You're enough right now. Exactly. You're wonderful right now. You don't always get to hear that. Um, but, you know, we get to choose to start believing it. Um, and it sounds like that's really fundamental to your program. So thank you for doing that. 100%. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. All right, my friends, that is our show for today. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. I invite you to check out the show notes where you'll find more information about Dr. Delia and her work. And please check out her podcast and her website to learn more. And if you're interested in working with her, I highly, highly recommend her as a teacher. So um, thanks for joining us. And until next week, see you then. Bye. 
Well, that's our show for today. Thank you as always for listening. To learn more about my coaching programs, head to www.healthierforgood.com. And if you love this podcast, please drop us a review on iTunes or support the show by clicking the link in the show notes. Until next time, take care.